Yo, excuse me, Mrs. Lynn. Yeah. Have you ever seen a show with a couple on the mic with bad content and it don't come out right? We tight. They ain't never tight. And that's not polite. Am I lying? No, you're quite right. Well, tonight on this every mic you're about to hear, we, we swear, swear the, the best, best podcast of the year. So, so. Here we go. Scream Bravo. Also, if you, you didn't, didn't know, this is our show. Hey, I like that. Life. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody back to America 20 to Life. This is our sixth show and we are so happy to be here with you all and this is going to be an amazing show just so everybody knows. We was up all night putting this together. Um, getting the content in order, putting everything together so that Miss Buchanan, Dr. Buchanan would come on and have a good platform to give you guys all the love and give you guys all the answers. Can't say all the answers, but some of them, some, some good of ones. the answers. Yes. <laughs> this is a mental health show that we're doing today. So if you know anybody who needs to hear this show, who needs to participate, if you have any questions, make sure you are putting your comments, excuse me, your comments in. The comment section, we can see those. We will add them to the story. And Dr. Buchanan will be here live to answer some of your questions regarding mental health and what you can do uh, to get yourself help or to help somebody else. Or if you just have general questions about mental health, this is the day. This is the time. So if you know anybody that you feel like would benefit from the conversation or, you know, talking to us or they have a question, Hit that share button. You can send it through Messenger or share the link on their page. Um, but this is a really special show today. There's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot going on right now um, with the coronavirus and the quarantine, self-quarantines, the stay-at-home orders. And there's a lot of people, um, people you may know, people that maybe you don't know that are struggling. Um, but there's a lot of people that are struggling at a baseline. So when we talk about mental health and how important it is, you know, to our family um, and to us, as far as it being a cause and it being very important that it's in a healthy state, um, there's a lot of people that are struggling right now. And uh, all these things that are going on in the world, they don't make it any better. They, they make it a lot worse. So. Yeah, I've been looking just around on my timeline, you know, and you got like a lot of people who I say like are silently reaching out for help. They'll say certain things like, you know, is this ever going to end? This is really affecting my depression right now. Or if you haven't seen somebody that's usually really active on Facebook or usually active in the world in some sort of fashion, and you know, they're living by herself or whatever the case is. I mean, there's just, this is a major issue that's going to be, I think it's going to be like the second wave of this coronavirus pandemic is going to be the, the effects of the depression and anxieties from um, people just being alone, man, like being alone is one thing, but then if you had underlying issues of depression or anxiety or anything like that, I mean, and then you add on the aspect that you can just walk outside and die or family members can walk outside and die for somebody with anxiety. I mean, that just, will, that'll send you reeling, you know, like it really will. And if you don't know how to handle that or don't know how to deal with those, um, those thought processes, then it can get really dangerous. So, we all, yeah, we also want to open up the conversation just for us in general, America 20 to Life, that conversation is always going to be an open one for us because 
um, there's a lot of stigma surrounding, you know, mental health. I mean, there's not just the stigma, but there's a lot of um, embarrassment, shame. Um, people really sweep it under the rug or they want you to sleep, you know, sweep it under the rug. And so we want to really take that away. We want to open up the conversation, keep that conversation open and know that that's going to be something that is very important to us to make sure we have continued conversations about. There are a lot of things in the world that, that crop up that, again, somebody might be doing okay. But just because somebody's doing okay doesn't mean that they're not living with some sort of PTSD, some sort of depression, anxiety that is heightened when there's certain things. And what's going on right now, my gosh, it, I mean, it's got even people that have never experienced things like that before experiencing it. And so they're kind of questioning, wow, why am I feeling like this? What am I feeling? How, you know, what's going on? How do I stop feeling like this? You see, I've seen people that even people that aren't usually active a lot on Facebook are really active on Facebook. Sometimes that's a cry for help, you know, or somebody that kind of drops off the face of the earth. They're kind of isolating. That can be a sign as well. So we want to, you know, talk about what you should look out for, how to pay attention and really just how to be there for people. I think it's important, too, to like. I'm going to I'm kind of uh, this is my testimony to my own battles with this. Um, I I mean, I've been through a lot in my life, but I've always really been able to handle it really well. As far as I was concerned, I was anyways, but. I actually started to reach out for help about two years ago, maybe a little longer than that. I think two and a half, three years ago, I started to reach out for help for things that I was dealing with that I wasn't really aware of why I was feeling the way I was or, you know, certain things that were very um, important to me weren't anymore. Um, relationships that were great weren't anymore. Um, I mean, I was lashing out in, you know, aggression to people that I love dearly that I would never want to hurt. I mean, there was just so many things that I was I was going through at the time that I just equated to. And I was always that I was that person, too. Like I was literally that person who say, suck it up, man. You're being a pussy. Excuse my language. But, you know, tighten up, bro. Like it's all good. We're going to get through it or whatever the case is. Or if anybody showed any type of weakness like that of a mental issue or they were they were acting like they couldn't take a situation. I was right there bannering them. Get, get it together. You know, you need to pick it up. And so I realized that through my own trials and situations that I was going through, that that's just not always a viable outcome to be able to just say, hey, I'm going to pick it up and, and move forward. So um, getting help was like one of the things that I eventually did that, I mean, it changed my life and not not just with depression or anxiety, because even to this day, I still question whether or not I have depression. You know, like I'll, I'll go into my meetings with my therapist and I'll sit there and I'll I'll talk to her about, well, I don't really feel depressed, but everything else outside of that, like what I'm dealing with says it's depression or it's anxiety. And there just comes in so many different fashions. So, I mean, like it changed me as a person to be able to look at life differently. And I know that when you have anxiety, you're going through anxiety for whatever reason it is. I mean, your, your brain can reel. And once you start to reel and you're reeling on the wrong thing, it can become too much. So getting help, reaching out. I was one of those people that had the stigma over me. I would put that stigma on other people. I'm taking myself and using myself as a guinea pig to show you all that I can be tough. I can be Mike Lynn. I can be the guy that's always, you know, happy as far as everybody can see to say that it's not always that. It's not always going to look how you think it's going to look. It's not always going to be something that you can beat down or just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So reaching out and getting help is like, I feel like if I can do it, any of you guys can do it to be a better person. So um, can we get the video up? Because I would like to um, play the, we, we did a promo um, 
and it's got some really good, you know, facts and figures and statistics. And um, we did the promo, obviously, for the show. Um, and, and Mike is kind of, you know, being the person to say, hey, I'm going to come out and talk candidly about it. I'm going to bear it all to everybody. And it's not an easy thing to do. I know I know it's not an easy thing to do, but I also know that especially in a lot of our communities, we've spent enough time and there's probably generations of people that have spent enough time sweeping it under the rug and not talking about it and not, you know, seeking the help. Um, but what that also does is it makes it really difficult to be a support system for other people. And so everybody's kind of caught, you know, caught in this perpetual cycle where there isn't a support system and people don't feel comfortable reaching out. So um, I want to play the promo and um, yeah, go ahead and play it. When there's so much focus on our physical health, it's important not to forget about our mental health. With all the changes happening as we overcome this pandemic, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, anxious, and stressed. Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, and even though we're approaching August, professionals want the conversation to continue year-round. News Channel 5's Kelsey Gibbs spoke with two doctors working to break the stigma in the black community. Every two hours and 11 minutes, a person on the age of 25 commits suicide. Ninety percent of the people who died by suicide had a diagnosable and treatable psychiatric issue at the time of their death. To help people. First off, why is there a stigma uh, in the black community when it comes to mental health? I'll start with you, Trisha. Because we're basically trained to not say anything and deal with what we have to deal with just on our own. Don't talk about it. Just do what you have to do. That's basically it. Sabrina can elaborate on that as well. Yeah, we were more like raised, uh, our, our, our parents basically when there were problems, everybody just prayed about it. We uh -huh. just talked about, we knew somebody who was seeing a therapist. It was, well, why waste your money to give you know, to a therapist, might as well just pray on it. But sometimes you need a landline as well, you know? Every two hours and 11 minutes, a person under the age of 25 dies by suicide. That's 10 people a day. What does depression and anxiety look like? It can also look like this. All right. So that was uh, really important um, to, to do just because I think it's really important sometimes to put a face to what we're talking about. That helps to break down the stigma. OK, we talk about how much we have. We have our people's back. We love each other, our friends, our homies, our family. Um, but then when it comes down to mental health, all of a sudden everyone acts like everyone's supposed to just carry it themselves and we're not supposed to talk about it and, you know, don't kill the vibe, don't kill the mood. But if you really care about, you know, your people and your friends and your family, that means being a support system for them when, you know, maybe they're not at their best. So we're here right now to tell you that America 20 Life is taking the stigma away. None, you know, this is a place where you can talk freely, ask questions about it. It's always going to be kind of a part of our shows. 
um, in the future, and especially around times where like this. Um, we're in a time right now that it's absolutely spiking some things for some people. Um, and, and if you guys have questions or, you know, you kind of want to talk a little bit about how it's been spiking it for you. I know I've talked to a lot of people in the last, I'd say, two weeks that have specifically said my anxiety is at an all-time high right now. Um, this is really, really getting my depression. I'm in a really low place. I feel really isolated. I, you know, I just, you know, I'm trying to get out of this funk. Uh, then we're getting inundated with like, you know, all these people that are like, oh, I've, you know, picked up painting again and I reorganized my entire house and my basement and my garage and um, people are, you know, sewing and learning all these new crafts and getting a new side hustle. And it's one of those things that it makes it even worse because you feel this pressure because everybody's like, if you don't come out of this productive, then you're just lazy. That's not true. That is absolutely not true. If you're getting through the day and you feel like you're, you know, surviving the day through this pandemic, this global pandemic where it's got everybody messed up, then I think you're doing good. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to to not have depression or anxiety is to just not you. I mean, you can't understand it unless you're dealing with it, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, unless you're li you're thinking of it from a uh, doctoral level and you study this situation, but. I didn't used to understand it. I have family members that deal with it seriously that have, you know, really serious depression issues and anxiety issues. And I would listen to some of the things that they would say. And I would just be like, man, just just do this, you know, just get out, just go do this and you'll be fine. You know, because that's how I cope with things. It, it made me feel better. But as time went on and I was getting things piled on to me, um, you know, through my professional career and seeing things that I was seeing and I, I guess basically. Um, things when they always say the cup runneth over. So when that started to happen to me, I realized that there wasn't any power to that anymore. Like you had no more power to say, I'm just going to get up and go out and I'll enjoy myself. You do get up and go out. You do go out and you, you, you know, you hang out and you can smile and you can laugh and you can do all of those things, but you just don't feel the same inside. And that's the best way I can explain it. As a kid, I can remember like springtime would come around and I would smell the trees and what my doctor always calls these are gratitudes. These are things that you're grateful for. And I started to lose those things. Like I couldn't feel that anymore. And that was like something that when I realized, like I really have an issue, like I can't, I don't feel grateful for things that used to send me over the rail, you know, things that used to me, I used to just think of, you know, I'm, I'm being able to go do this this weekend and it would just like make me happy for three days going forward. And that was no longer there anymore. And then when I was in the moment, and supposed to be enjoying those things, I wouldn't be enjoying them. So that's when, and I want to preface by saying also with everything that I'm talking about, this, I'm better. And when I say that I'm better, that means that I got the help. So I didn't just sit on these things and let these things calculate wrong in my mind. A lot of things that I dealt with, like as far as PTSD goes, um, were through job related situations that happen. And when you have situations like that happen, and then you don't, uh, put those things in the right compartment in your brain, you start to think about them wrong. And if you, the longer you allow that to go on, the way you think about something, if you're thinking about it the wrong way, the longer you allow that to go on, the worse it's going to be for you. So I caught mine pretty early and not that early, but I caught it early enough to where I don't, I don't want to say like the statistic of being suicidal didn't hit me. Like I've never felt that way about it. I've just really wondered what was going on like what how can i be happy in these situations again so i mean that 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 being said like 
that's why I think it's so important that we're doing this show and we're getting you guys in front of an actual therapist. Well, she's not a therapist. She's a psychologist and there's mm -hmm. a difference. But um, we're getting you in front of her so that you can take your own situation, your own life. She's going to give tools and how to how to fix things that you, I shouldn't say fix, how to deal with and handle things that you're going through. There's so many things that I took from our meetings that um, just helped me out in life, period. Not just with anxiety, depression or the PTSD that I dealt with. It's more or less like it helped me out to be a better man. If anybody knows me and some some of you guys have known me for years and years and years, I'm a total different person than I was before. And it's not a bad thing to where I'm, I think I'm better. I'm on a high horse. It's more or less like I'm more forgiving. I'm, I'm willing to let bygones be bygones and move past things. I mean, I've, I've just been able to change and see people's perspective more than I've ever been able to see it before. So it's not always what Mike feels or what Mike wants or Mike feels this or thinks that. I've been able to more or less think, like, how am I interacting with this situation to give the outcome that I'm getting? And that's just being a better person. That, like, helps you be a better man or a better woman in, 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 at the end of the day. Yeah, I think working through issues like that and being honest with yourself and being able to be honest with other people, you have to you got to think about the, the mental and emotional load that people carry you know, and that, that the toll that it takes on you, if you're not working through these things, you don't have any coping mechanisms, you don't have the tools that you need. Um, you might not even really understand what it is that you're going through. Um, perfect example. Um, we've got, you know, Mike Sr. saying, I started at 14. I didn't understand not wanting to be alive. That's such a true fact with young people. Sometimes you do, they don't even understand what it is that they're feeling. And so when there's already that concept and then you add in the stigma that comes along with wanting to, you know, sweep it under the rug, wanting to keep it hush, wanting to, you know, not acknowledge it and just kind of, you know, pray it away, silence it away or whatever you want to call it, it never gets addressed. And it's not that it goes away. What it is is just people stop talking about it. They learn to hide it better. And those are all you know, negative things. Mm -hmm. And so like, think about that, like being 14 years old and not understanding something like that and then not knowing who to go to, who to talk to or, or what. So like not wanting to live this, think about the, I think about the, the ultimate aspect of not wanting to be here anymore. It's like in nature, your natural and all species natural reaction is to live, right? You don't see too many things just going and hurting themselves. Like, animals in the wild and we're nothing but animals in the wild as well we have natural instincts so our natural instinct is always to avoid danger avoid pain avoid so like what i've learned about suicide is a lot of time it's a reaction to avoid pain so it seems like in somebody's mind who's healthy that why would you want to inflict the ultimate pain of death on yourself but it's because and i can't say this because i'm not i've never been to this level but from what I, the, my perspective of what it is, is that pain that they're feeling at that time, this is the end of, this is how you end that pain. So in the natural aspect of wanting to not be, put yourself in danger or put yourself in a position to have pain, that's the, that's like what they go to. And so like, that's what I'm saying, like how powerful that has to be to go to that level, you know, when you, the natural instinct in you is to live or the natural instinct is you to just be here and stay away from pain, but that's where you go. I, I've had a couple of conversations with people that I care very deeply about that um, have been to that point. And one of the common things that, that you will hear someone say is that comes out of sheer desperation. And you have to really think about how desperate 
you have to be to want that hurt to stop um, in order to consider something like that, to, to think about something like that. So you got to learn to kind of think about it in a different way. Think about that. People are desperate to, you know, get out of that pain that they're feeling or whatever the case may be. So think if we back it up a little bit and maybe catch it earlier, you know, catch it when you first, people first start feeling that and, you know, give coping tools, give, you know, mechanisms that they can work through things. It never has to reach that point. But the first thing that we got to do is learn how to talk about it, you know, yeah. without being uncomfortable and without shame, you know, and, and talk about it just the same way that we would. You wouldn't hide that you had to go get a tooth pulled, would you? If you broke your ankle and had to go get a cast, you wouldn't hide the cast from everybody, right? Yeah. So why do we hide these things? <clears throat> so you know? it's funny because like growing up in neighborhoods that I grew up, like the things that now that I'm now that I'm out of those, like I shouldn't say now that I'm out of them, but now that I've grown to a maturity where I, I realized like some of the things that we all went through as kids wasn't normal or things that we seen as kids wasn't normal. It was to us though. But those same things are the reason why we walk around with our cup full at a very young age and just don't know where to put all of that at. So, I mean, ultimately a lot, a lot this affects the black community more. I shouldn't say the black, but minority and lower income communities more than it does anybody else. Cause we just don't be knowing. And we're inflicted, a lot of stuff's inflicted on us constantly that we just don't even understand that ain't right. So like racism, I mean, people act like racism, I shouldn't say people, a lot of people though act like racism is something that is just natural for us to go through, but it's not natural. And when you realize it's happening to you, it does become a point of depression and anxiety and anxiety, especially having to go into situations, say that, for instance, you work someplace where you might be the only black person or maybe one of only a couple black people. It gives you anxiety to walk into this room that you feel like is all the way against you. So this is where, again, psychology has helped to make you understand that it's not everybody. It's not everybody that feels these ways. So this is what I mean by making you a better person is by going through these processes. So anxiety is one of those things that if you let it, it'll spiral you. It'll spiral you right on down and out the way. Depression is one of those things that makes you feel better to sit in the house and lay in your room, be by yourself, but it's one of the worst things you could possibly do. So don't shun people for having these uh, these diagnoses and then going out and being around. So I hear people say things like this, you know, that person looks super happy. How can they be anxiety ridden or depressed? You know, you don't understand what that person is going through. And kind of like the video, a depression could look like anything. It can be that same person that's the life of the party. It can be the same person that's in their room all day and don't come out. You just don't ever know what it is. You never know reason why somebody comes out and about. Maybe that's their one time out of the whole week that they're able to get themselves up out of bed, shave their face, wipe their butt off, and come out and try to have a good time. So don't shame people, especially don't shame people for coming forward. Like I've seen some people when we first started talking about doing this show uh, a couple weeks ago, they were you know making jokes that they probably thought they needed this, and I agree. You know, I agree, you probably do need this. And I, I'm hoping that some of those people are watching this or going to pay attention to what the doc has to say and take some of these resources to get that help because yeah, a lot of people are dealing with it. We're 21 days into this quarantine. For anybody that's living by herself, this is like, when they talk about solitary confinement in prison, this is when people start going crazy. Even though you have TVs and so on and so forth, it don't matter. When you don't have any social interaction with people, you can't get a hug or you can't. Yeah. You know, just turn and look at somebody and say something. I mean, even just having a social social or socially talking to her, I still want my friends and other people, my parents. I want to see my son. You know, it's like all types of things you can't do still that can drive you up a wall. So 
on top of being inundated with everything that's kind of going on in the world, so you're getting hit from all ends. You've got your close people and how it's affecting them. You know, you yourself, maybe loss of income, um, you know, kids home and, you know, a spouse that has to work. That's scary. All these things are scary. Or maybe you have to work yourself. That's scary in itself. So that's, you know, how it's affecting you on a personal level. Then you've got, you know, your local area. How is Lansing doing? How's Ingham County? You know, what are our numbers looking like? How long is this going to go on? Then you've got the state. How Michigan's doing? Then you've got it on the U.S. level and the global level. So it's a lot of layers um, to be thinking about. And then you leave people alone with their thoughts and they're by themselves and they're isolated. That's, you know, it's a difficult thing to deal with and, and to cope with. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I would always tell people if you if something feels off or something feels funny or you're talking to someone and you just kind of have a feeling about them, go with it and don't do the easy thing of thinking that if something was wrong or, you know, they would seem a certain way. I can tell you right now, depression, anxiety, PTSD, they do not look the way that you might think they look. Um, we have no clue how they may look. They may look as functioning as all out because um, people that, you know, you know, live with these things are some of the strongest people on earth. They're the strongest people you will ever meet because they go through this and deal with this every day and they still manage to be a functioning person as often as they can in this world and they're still here, still standing. So just know it's not always going to look and sound like you might think that it does. Right. And I think Dr. Buchanan will touch a lot on that as well. So who we're bringing on, let's, let's get on that note. So we're bringing on here in about five or six minutes. Her list of stuff is just way too long for me to say. I mean, it's, when she sent, I asked her to send me over a bio and the bio is one page, but all of her accreditations and all the things that she's involved with is like 48 pages long. I mean, all the things that she's done. And I was saying to her earlier, we had did kind of a, a, a pre-interview and I was telling her like, you know, after looking at all this, I realized, you know, like you have the, the service, you have like army rangers and you have just regular infantry army but then you have the Navy SEALs, right? And then you have Delta Force and you have the Rangers and a Marine Marine Recon that are like the special forces. This is kind of what she is as far as this world is, is like the special force. She like, she teaches other psychologists how to do this work. So I'm just gonna read you like a little bit about her bio here. Um, first of all, her name is Nicole Buchanan, PhD. She received her doctorate from Univers University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And she is now an associate professor of psychology at Michigan State University and the clinical director and founder of Alliance Psychological Associates, PLLC, in East Lansing, where she sees clients, provides supervision, and mentors other mental health professionals. Dr. Buchanan is a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science, four separate divisions of the American Psychological Association, and has received numerous national and international awards for her research, teaching, clinical work, and professional service. I mean, she's just like, I can't explain. Like, I was blessed, to be honest with you. Before I went and seen her, I had seen, uh, and I had spoke on this prior, I seen like two other doctors. I seen a psychiatrist and a therapist. And I wasn't feeling any type of way about it. I wasn't feeling like I was really getting the help that I needed. And then I was given this number from one of my uh, buddies who was actually seeing her as well. And I contacted her and she was super busy again because she's the elite, right? So she's got her list as completely bogged up with people that want to come see her. And uh, I finally got into her like after a couple emails and, and so on and so forth. And it's changed my life, honestly. So, and it's not just like I said about the anxiety or depression, it saved my life and, and, and helped me to be a better person. So, and you know, this is such a special show because we're so honored to 
have her on to be able to, you know, talk with you guys and you guys can even, you know, ask questions or throw some topics topics out and she can talk to you about some of the things that she, you know, feels are very important to discuss, but she's really made it her life's work. Um, and it goes so much farther and beyond just her being a psychologist. Um, she really tries to delve into every single layer and every facet of mental health. So when you talk about um, you know, socioeconomic, you know, factors, you talk about racial factors, um, women deal with things differently. Um, you've got, you know, um, college kids, uh, students, children, um, the sexual abuse, you know, aspect of it, you name it, the facet that it could permeate into, you know, it affecting your mental health. She's an expert in that area, meaning she's made it her life's work to really be so multifaceted. If you sit down with her, she can really give you those, you know, tools and and really be able to help you. And in mental health therapy, it's fluid. It's an ongoing thing. It's a two-way street. You've got to work at it. But when you've got somebody like her in your corner, man, that makes all the difference. Yeah, so, so we're really honored to have her. Yeah. So also, I posted on the ad for the, I shouldn't say ad, but like the Facebook post for this, some of her YouTube, uh, she did a TEDx at MSU, which, is, which was on... Um, excising a virus of the mind individual and institutional responsibility for reducing implicit bias invited presentation for T ted msu at michigan state university East lansing so there was a youtube video up on that i hope some of you guys watched that um this is another reason why she was extremely helpful for me because i was going through some of these exact things at the time and it was the cause of a lot of my um my anxieties i guess i should say so that was a great one for me to be able to talk to her about these type of things that she's an actual expert in. Um, so that was that. And then there was another one where she did um, uh, bias and its role in social in inequity, invited presentation for the forum, sharper focus, wider lens symposium on the nature of inequality, Michigan State University Honors College. So, I mean, she's just, she's been everywhere. So I want to say that to say this, make sure you guys are putting in questions, even if you got somebody sitting with you in the room that doesn't really want to put their name on it, shoot it in there. Don't be embarrassed. Don't feel nervous about it. If you don't feel comfortable putting it on here in live, text me, inbox me, yeah, inbox me. either one of us. We'll get the question in and get it answered for you. Um, it's just such an important situation. It's such an important topic right now, I think. And I'm glad that everybody was able to get on here that's on here now, invite people in, um, share the video, get people in here because here she comes. I'm going to actually go ahead and get her on here for you yep, now. So let me get this going here. For sure. So start thinking about some things that you might want to ask. Um, like I said, if you want to message it and also now would be the time to share, you know, if you feel like there's somebody you want to get on here. On here. For sure. So start thinking about some things that you might want to ask. Um, Doc, you there? You want to message I'm here. it? And I think you're going to have to turn the volume down on the live. Get on here. I'm getting feedback from it. Can you hear me? I'm muted. You, I think it's muted now. Is that right? Does yep. It sound better? Yep. I can hear there you. Can you see us? And then you might have to turn your camera on or accept incoming video with the little, like in the bottom right corner. There, there you go. go. Doctor Buchanan, welcome. 
Hello, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I don't know how much you caught of the show. We kind of gave them a brief description of uh, what I had been going through, what I was able to find help with. And now I introduced you and kind of talked about briefly your uh, bio here. I told them you had 48 pages of all the stuff you've been involved in, so I couldn't shoot all that out there. But I did tell them you were the elite of the elite. So um, there's probably, I think we got 13 people in here right now. So I'm hoping that people add questions in, but um, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I will also tell people that in my classes, what I encourage people to do is, you know, we all have a friend with this. And if we all kind of talk about things from the perspective of, well, my friend feels this way or my friend had this experience, I, it makes it easier for everyone to ask questions. But also sometimes in forums like this, we give away information and people figure out who we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the more mm -hmm. we can put some distance with our questions and kind of the story, the more we'll keep all that safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's you let let's hear you tell a little bit about yourself. I've told a little bit about what I know. You tell a little bit about yourself. Oh, that's so hard to do. Well, I um, have been in this area since 2002. I came here as a brand new faculty member at Michigan State University, and have been doing dedicating my my life's work to looking at the kinds of experiences that tend to disproportionately happen to people of color and women of color and how that impacts their well-being. So what happens in the workplace? How does that impact how they function? Um, what are the rates of violence? How do we begin to reduce those and help those individuals who have been victimized? Gotcha. So um, overview of therapy, like, what is the difference between what you do, what a therapist does, a psychiatrist does? So, like, what, what's the difference between those? Well, you got to be a little careful. I don't want to get in too much trouble if I make it sound like one is better than the other. But there really are some different roles and functions. So, when we're talking about going to a psychiatrist, typically this is going to be an MD that has done some additional training in how to treat psychiatric disorders using medication. So they're often going to be people that have worked in inpatient hospitals. They tend to deal with some of our most severe types of mental illness, things that are uh, most amenable to medication. So it's like uh, bipolar disorder is an example, schizophrenia is an example. So the kinds of things that would result in somebody being inpatient in a hospital. Um, as a psychologist, I have a PhD so you go to school for five, six, seven years, you do, and that entire time is specializing in clinical research and clinical practice. And then several of the other types of therapist degrees can have a master's or a PhD as well. You can have a master's in social work or a doctorate in social work, um, a master's in marriage and family therapy or a doctorate. So it depends on, generally the differentiation is going to be the kinds of focus people have. So marriage and family therapists, they learn a lot about looking at the family system and how these systems interact. Um, clinical psychology tends to focus more on individuals, which is one of the challenges I've had as a, a clinical psychologist because I don't see the world that way. So a lot of it is about what is their training. And also all mental health workers do added training after they finish school. So where they have left school doesn't mean that they haven't gotten additional training. So you want to really find out what it is they have done to specialize versus right. thinking about it if you have the right degree. 
Gotcha. Okay. So what would you say um, would be a good place for somebody that like is listening now and this, you know, says to themselves, you know, I think this might be for me, you know, maybe I need to look into this. Uh, how would one go about, you know, starting that process? If you're, if we take the assumption that people don't want to talk to someone else about getting referrals or they don't know who to talk to about referrals, one option is go to Psychology Today's website and look for therapists in your area. Um, that will often have pictures, but they'll have these bios that tell you what their focus is, the, the insurances they take, although I find that that's not always going to be helpful. You need to really talk to them about what insurance. But it will give you a feel for what their focus is, what kind of patients they typically are working with, and their bios will give you a sense about who they are as a person. But I also encourage people, think about this as a consumer-driven industry where you need to go in there and figure out, is this person the person for me? And if after a few sessions, it, it doesn't seem to be working, find another person. Don't think that that means therapy doesn't work or don't think that that means this isn't for you. Find the person that is for you. Absolutely. I went through that. So I went through that before I met with you. I had two doctors that I went to and they're great people. I just didn't feel like I was getting the help that I needed personally. And so, yes, that that is absolutely one of those things. I've talked to people who say they went to see therapists and it just wasn't my thing. And I'm like, you know, I would say things like, well, come on. I mean, did you really put all into it? And really, it probably was that those two people weren't compatible. You know, or that yeah. person may not have been specializing in what they really needed help with. So it's, it's kind of one of those things you got to be your own advocate to get the right person. I like that consumer based approach. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You wouldn't go yeah. to Myers to get buy a car. Right. So it's yeah. kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. it's true. And I also say that um, we change over time. So I like to think of therapy as kind of this lifespan model. So we come in, we do this piece of the work for a while, and then you might be done with what you want to do at that point in time. And then as new phases of life come about, you have new things that you want to focus on. And that may mean you need to see a different kind of person to work out those kind of issues. Yeah. So it's not necessarily even a bad thing. If you're switching, it may mean that you've grown and now you need to shift your focus. Right. And so I kind of use I kind of use therapy right now where very acutely it's a chronic situation where I do come, you know, weekly or I talk to you weekly. But it's really acute. Like I, I, I've, I've been in crisis mode and I've been able to talk to you and come out of that and feel better. So I, I that's what I kind of advocate to people is like when you find the right person that helps you. I mean, it can be and I don't want to use this term lightly, but it can be life and death if you really are that bad off, because I like I said, in an acute situation, I can have that hour-long session and walk out of there and be, I can see clearly now. You know, it's like, and I'm not saying it's a magic pill, but sometimes I just come in there and I rant for an hour. And then you'll give me something really good to take home with me that last 10 minutes. And it's like, wow, I just needed to get that off my chest wholly and be able to completely get it out free of any distraction or feeling any type of embarrassment about it you know i never i never leave those situations and feel like wow why did i just tell her all that you know i, I trust the situation it feels good when i leave there i don't feel that way um and i've had that situation sometimes when i've poured something out and then i leave it and it's like oh man should i really told that person now who are they gonna tell i never really have that feeling so speaking of that like confidentiality how can somebody know 
that when they come in there and talk to a therapist and pour all this stuff out, like what are the things that you would be um, mandated to talk to somebody else about? And then what things can you are just between you two? Oh, I, I really appreciate you asking that question. We are mandated to maintain the privacy of every single thing that is said in that room, with the exceptions of times that someone is clearly going to be in danger of hurting themselves, hurting someone else, or if they tell us about a, an individual of a protected class, like a chil children, someone who's elderly, somebody who has a developmental disability, that that person is being hurt or abused, then those would be times that we have an ethical mandate to keep the individual safe and to keep others safe by breaking confidentiality. But even under those circumstances, it's not a floodgate of, let me tell you every single thing that I know about this person. It's very specific to what is needed to get them safe and get them the care that they need in that acute situation. And ideally, and so far I've been uh, very fortunate that I've never had to force a, a, a report or force someone to go to the hospital. I've been able to work with them and then make the decision that this really is in my best interest and go ahead and, and present myself to the hospital. Yeah. But those would be the only times. Otherwise, and, and I'll also say, this is taken very, very seriously in the field. Um, if there's someone who talks about any of the circumstances that they've seen in a treatment room, they've probably changed all of the important details. They've probably left most of the important things out altogether. And people work very hard to make sure that no one can be identifiable. And in general, we don't even talk about the clinical cases with any individuals attached to it. And that's not only because of our, our kind of moral standing, but it's also ethically the kind of thing that it can be reported to the board and we can lose our licenses to practice. Right. So people take it very seriously. They work very hard to protect the privacy of their, their clients. So I'm probably a special case that I'm here on live with my whole community talking about <laughs> my situation. But you know why I'm doing this. It's not to benefit myself in any way, but I, I feel like people do pay attention to what is going on with me. And I felt like coming out about this at this point in time was probably the best for the community that watches, the kids that are out here not understanding what's going on and may feel like my dad did when he was 14 and may not want to live or whatever the case is. So the timing right is, now, this is, is really kind of me landing on a sword, you know, as I've done multiple times, as you know, for the community that I live in. So you got all the right in the world to talk about what we're talking about here. So you don't have to worry about that. But I appreciate you for that, for that answer to that. Um, so the stigma surrounding mental health, like what, what, what do you think it is like that people feel so, I mean, people feel like they have like a, a bruised brain if they have an issue, but we know that's not what it is. So what, what do you think the stigma is behind that? And then how do we get past that as a community and, and, and really move towards really taking mental health serious? If I had to bet, I would think, I, I would guess that there's a few key pieces of it. And uh, one, it's historical that we, we are not typically in my group of people being black people, we have not been given the space to show weakness. Mm -hmm. um, we have both John Henryism for black men and the strong black woman ideal for black women. And all of that is you pile 
through, you keep going, you don't stop, you don't show weakness, you give to others at your own sacrifice. And that show of strength makes it very difficult for you to simultaneously say, hey, I'm hurting right now, I need help. Or I'm feeling really scared and I don't quite know why and I don't know how to fix it. What do I do? Um, so we, we haven't created a space for that to be okay. And I think there's also been uh, a lot, an assumption that if there are some mental health challenges, that that means somebody has a serious mental illness. Yeah. And yeah. that is not at all the case. Um, I, I, if somebody comes to my office, we could be doing life coach work. I could be consulting with them on a grant. I could be talking to them about things that their office is doing and wants to bring me in for training. Uh, I could be talking about doing assertiveness classes with them. It's not that they have a mental illness. Yeah. So um, the idea that seeing someone talking about this, admitting to this means that there's something really seriously wrong is completely false. And perhaps one of the biggest issues is the field has done us wrong. Plain and simple. Mm. Uh, historically, psychology, and whether it's health or mental health, we have been exploited, we have been mistreated, we have been um, victimized. You know, there was there was a formal diagnosis, I believe it was called dreptomania, that was a diagnosis that they would impose for slaves who wanted to run away from being enslaved. So one of the things I say in class all the time is psychology is inherently political and psychology will be a part of every major wonderful force in society, but it also has to be responsible for the fact that it has been a force in every problematic from, from euthanasia, eugenics, the Holocaust, psychology has been a part of those processes. And so from, from almost all marginalized groups, they have a piece of history that the psychology field was directly involved in their harm. Mm -hmm. People not trust and not want to come in, and who could blame them for that? So, so we had talked earlier, and you had talked about that. Like, if somebody wanted to get help, and they went out to reach out for help on the internet, you, see, I know you talked about some inequities that they may find on the internet, and in, in regards to people of color or marginalized groups looking on the internet because of that same thing, like. You may find information that could be out there to harm you, even when you're looking for help. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. When we think about, especially put in the context of COVID, most individuals are going to be looking for resources by accessing a computer, accessing the internet, and then seeking out those services or those references and resources. And when you hear people give advice about what to do in times of COVID, everything they're saying involves go to the internet which is, is laden with a variety of assumptions and biases about who has access, you know, in essence, our privilege. So who has access to smartphones, to the bandwidth, who has data plans that can uh, handle this volume of work that we're now doing online. So that there tends to be inequities across uh, socioeconomic status and across racial groups and who has access to those kinds of resources. And then, so when we're all the resources we have to offer involve going to computers and going online, you see that that inequity mm. is it's worsened as a result. Yeah. Even when people go to find resources, there isn't much out there that really comes from a culturally informed, uh, culturally respectful and responsive mm. framework. Um, 
typically what's been what's happened is to the extent that the major studies have involved people of color it's been a offshoot saying well we had this program already designed to treat this disorder now we just gave it to this group to see if it would work or we gave it to this group and we said it in their language we had speakers do it in their language and then you know that was that's it it's very difficult to find treatments that have been supported empirically by research that from the ground up were based on the experiences of people of color or people people that had marginalized identities. And whenever you just try to adapt it, there's gonna be a mismatch. And the more pieces that mismatch, the less likely it is to feel like something people wanna do. Right, and so what I'm gathering from that is, uh, what I said on earlier is like, the traumas that we go through at an early age and then going on through, that may be totally different from somebody who grows up in a upper class neighborhood or upper class family that is not a marginalized group. They they have different issues than we'll have. So if you have somebody who's not specifically trained in understanding that, you're not really going to get that help that you need, correct? It's going to at least be far more challenging. I don't want to ever give the message that it can't happen, but it's definitely going to be much more challenging. And the reality is I I recently had a paper came, come out that was why clinical psychology must change or die. And I'm talking about this very issue. When we look at the demographics of the population coming up, they could not be more different from the population of therapists that we are training now for the, for those people. So we, we are seeing a world that is becoming increasingly diverse, where individuals are speaking more in languages than just English, where they're coming to the table with multiple cultural backgrounds, not kind of just the Anglo-Saxon, uh, Western Europe backgrounds. And yet we are not cha- training therapists that reflect those backgrounds. We don't have requirements that people learn a second language when that used to be the norm in graduate school. Um, and, and still, most programs do very, very little to actually ensure that those clinicians have gone into the world with a basic cultural understanding and a sense of cultural humility. You know, this idea of, I couldn't possibly know your entire story, and I know that there's going to be differences in how my experience has shaped my life and how your experience has shaped your life. How do we have a conversation about that? Right. That seems like it should be a basic part of any training to do mental health work, but it's actually a very rare piece of the training. And very often when it's done, it's a one-time class. Uh, they are not held accountable to be able to do it well. And they can graduate with very, very little skill in working with anybody but affluent, insured, white, articulate intelligent clients. So a quick question about that. So now we're talking about the cultural aspect. You had, we had talked one time and I was telling you about how hard it was for me to find somebody at the current time that I was dealing with the issues that I was dealing with. They were race related. A lot of it was, and it was hard to find a doctor or a psychologist of any kind that was of color at all in Lansing. So we had spoken on that and you had given me kind of like a, a, a baseline of why you thought that was. Can you like elaborate on people like in, in, the, in these areas like Lansing? It's not we're we're really a minority here in the city. Why is it so hard to find a doctor of any kind, health doctor, psychologist, dentist that's of color? 
Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, if we use psychiatry as an example, one of the challenges we have in Michigan is that they can make so much more money anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so we can't maintain psychiatrists, at least the number of psychiatrists that we need to serve our population. And uh, so that same thing is trickling down into the other related professions. But then when you then add in that it's a person of color who wants to be able to offer their services to other people of color, the, the fact that the population here is smaller often means that to, to do the work they want to do, they end up having to leave the state or leave the area. So you, you will definitely see that there are more clinicians of color, more psychiatrists of color in more urban populations like Detroit. It's much easier to find people. But in a space like Lansing, there, there really are not anywhere near enough of us to provide the kind of high quality services that we want to ensure our communities get. So why do you do what you do? Why did you stay? Why do I say? You know, a couple of things, if I were to be completely honest, one is financially, I'm a little bit more protected than somebody in private practice because I also work with the university. So I can, I don't need as many clients and I can weather some of the up and downs that come with being in private practice. So I, I should own my privilege on that piece from the beginning. Um, but the other piece of it for me also is that there are communities here there, there are people that I can serve here that I feel very committed to. And it's clear to me that there are times where I've been able to work effectively with someone who, if they couldn't have found me, they wouldn't have gone. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. That's awesome. I think that's absolutely true because something I've been thinking about this whole time when you're talking about representation is really, I guess, what it boils down to. And do you think that that is part of or maybe some of the reasons that people don't seek treatment is they don't feel represented and there's already a stigma involved and so if you can't find someone that looks like you or you can see yourself in or you're you feel represented there is already a little bit of judgment involved and you may feel like that person's going to judge you because you know a lot of people that are in marginalized communities are, are born out of trauma or have lived through a lot of trauma, a lot of cycles of trauma. And so you feel like, is this person going to judge me or are they going to be able to help me? Are they going to be able to understand? And so all of that maybe seeks makes it so you don't want to even seek it out. Oh, absolutely. There, if you think about the impact, if you go to the store and you have a bad experience at that store and you tell your friends and, and if you have another option of where to go, you'll never go to that store, even if it wasn't you that had the bad experience, right? And so when people seek out a therapist and they then have a bad experience because they've seen somebody who doesn't understand how to be culturally responsive, they talk to, you know, the impact of that one event spreads much further than that one person because the way they talk about seeking therapy, the way they talk about their experience has a chilling effect on other people even seeking help. So it doesn't take very many stories of, well, I went to this therapist and then we couldn't talk about race or I went to this therapist and they cracked a joke that they should have known would have a racial implication or I went to therapist and as soon as I brought up that something happened, they tried to convince me that I was wrong, that it wasn't really about race. Once you have that happen, the impact goes far further than that individual person. So a lot of people don't try to show up in the first place. 
some people come and they are they find it difficult to take that risk unless they know for sure that these kinds of conversations are okay or that I'm not going to be judged in this way or that way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of people will stop themselves from even entertaining the process because again, the field has a bad history of mistreating people that, from marginalized groups. So I, I want to add in a couple questions here because we kept telling everybody it's just been so good you talking stuff, but I wanted I do want to get some of these questions in here and we will roll these in throughout. We got a lot more that I want to actually ask you, but I want to give these people some chance to get in. So. Uh, Daniel Rodriguez posted in here, um, doctor, what is your stance on the studies John Hopkins has done using, what is psychedelics. that? Psychedelics. Yeah, psychedelics to treat ailments like anxiety and depression. What do you, uh, what do you take on that? So I would almost think that this question was a plant because this is one of my favorite things to talk about ever. <laughs> so... If I were to take, let's say, the last several decades of work and not go back to some of the past studies where people of color were used as guinea pigs in psychedelic studies, but let's just if I focus on like the last 20 years of the more solid good work that's been done, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know that psychedelics have an amazing positive impact on psychological well-being. It's actually been being, it was being studied pretty heavily in the 50s and 60s. And then for political reasons, the funding got pulled and it got labeled as a, a, a controlled substance and something that people was, that was then criminalized. But communities have been using psychedelic medicines for millennia. And they use them because they work. Mm. And so we have begun studying them again. We're seeing the same impact. They can be incredibly, incredibly powerful in addressing anxiety, depression, and most importantly, trauma. Mm. Our communities have so much trauma. And the beauty of psychedelics is you don't have to be able to articulate it for it to have positive impact. So one of the things that we, therapy is designed around people that can come in and talk to us about what happened. But our communities have historical trauma. We have cultural trauma. We have the legacy and the lineage of these stories that we carry within ourselves that harm, that hurt, that are painful. And we don't always know enough about the individual story to have that conversation. But psychedelics don't require that. Yeah. Wow. So right now I am I have completed parts A's and parts A and B of the MAPS training to be able to offer MDMA assisted psychotherapy. And I am working with the organization to hopefully be the first location in Michigan to be able to offer this for the expanded access program. And once the expanded access program has been completed, we're hoping that it will be registered as a a, um, an open treatment that anybody who has the right conditions is able to participate in. So uh, we, we had talked about this a little bit and I'm just such a chicken shit. <laughs> like, so I can't even smoke marijuana without tripping out. So I'm, what, what would be your response to somebody who had that kind of conversation? Like they're just like, so they've heard all the bad stuff about, uh, 
you know, psychedelics. And they're like, no, I just could never do that because this, that, or the other, or it's only for white boys. Only white boys do that. Like, what would you have to say to somebody like that? Well, one, I want to say, you know, that fear is, is legitimate. There's, there's good reason to be afraid. And part of that is again, the field, the field itself and what it's done. We were randomly without our knowledge, without our consent, subjected to psychedelic studies and that, that that's part of the legacy of the field and that's a very painful part and it's one that lives on and there, we are also subject to the host of deliberate lies that were sent through society about psychedelics in order to maintain social control and I'm trying not to go too far out there but um, when psychedelics were, were taken away from the from research trials was very deliberate in a way of trying to control the general public because people were protesting the Vietnam War. Yeah. And it was linked to psychedelic use because part, part of what psychedelics do is they create a sense of oneness with all other li living creatures. And so it becomes very hard to feel justified in going to war once you've incorporated plant medicines or psychedelic medicines. Wow. It was taken away as part of a, a pub, public ploy. Um, and all of these stories were infused into society. I, I remember myself a story about my father's best friend went off to war and then came back, did some LSD, and now he was permanently damaged. Mm -hmm. And, and he was never able to recover. And everybody has that story, right? Yep. We all have that story. I heard him. Yeah, the guy in, in my story was Lonnie. I don't know if, what, who his name was in your story, but we all have the story. Um, so one, there were deliberate efforts to make us terrified of psychedelics that have just been proven false. And there were misunderstandings about the real cases of Lyme. You know, the person who came back from war and was permanently not able to function well in society. And what we were missing was, no, that's what really severe trauma looks mm -hmm. like. Yeah, absolutely. PTSD. And I can understand that. <laughs> and so it was much easier to say, well, they took a drug, which also, by the way, makes it their fault, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Drugs, so now they're crazy and not functional, so this becomes a cautionary tale, don't you do that too. Um, but that's, if you actually look at the cases where there's been dangerous experiences in the use of psychedelic medicines, it's not been in treatment facilities, it's not been where it was pure, a pure substance, uh, and people weren't honoring some of the core facets of psychedelic medicine, that you have to have another person there in place to ins ins to ensure your safety. Gotcha. That there can be very scary images that you're processing, and you should not be doing that on your own. You should not be doing that where everybody else in the room is also high. You should be doing that where there's somebody there who's taking care of you, who's monitoring how you're doing. So. When you've seen that people were injured, for example, ecstasy, it's often things like dehydration because they're taking it in a crowded party, they're overheating, they, they might be taking a substance that has other things mixed in, they don't know if it's pure. Mm. Uh, well, that disappears when you're talking about 
psychedelics as part of a formal treatment program. Um, wow. It's pure, it's, it's low dose, it's under highly monitored conditions. Um, there's not been a single adverse event in the MAPS run trials. I, I should take it back. One event, someone got anxious, someone, they weren't, they felt like they were having something going on with their heart. So they went to the emergency room and they kept them to monitor them, but there was absolutely nothing wrong. Um, so out of the thousands of trials run, there's not been a single incident other than somebody who got worried that something was wrong and went to the hospital and was declared I did my research and I watched all the YouTube videos and I never seen anything like that either. All I seen was people coming out of that situation and saying that it changed their life. And that, I mean, there was a lady that was terminally ill with cancer and she was so afraid to die and she was going to leave her family behind. And all she had was like six months left to live. And she didn't want to live that last six months of her life, just paranoid and, and anxious about dying. And she said she, she went through that study and came out of that. And she said she was prepared she was ready to deal with whatever came. She was able to enjoy the rest of her life that she had on this earth. It was just amazing when I watched that video. I was just like, wow. You know, and it was like every person has said that. And some people said that it was like a very terrifying experience while it was happening. But something great came out of it after getting through it. Not not to say every person said that, but some people that did have bad reactions to it said it was terrifying. But what I learned from it helped me live the rest of my life to be to be great. So that I mean, wow. I'm not totally against anybody trying that, but I just don't know that it's going to be my thing. But, you know, I, you I'm know, working and doing good work without it right now. I just appreciate the fact that you're doing work like this that is challenging the status quo on how we look at things and what kind of treatments to be able to use and taking the stigma away from something like that. Like, this is so fascinating to me. I, I cannot wait to see kind of what it ends up becoming. And the fact that you may be, you know, the first person to be able to do this here is astonishing and phenomenal. I think somebody That's already my said elite, that. my elite doctor right there. <laughs> like, that is amazing. It's yeah. impressive and amazing. And I'm just so glad to, I, it's, I'm so glad to hear that. I'd never really heard a lot about that before. So one more question real quick. And then you guys, you guys can all add questions. in as you go, I will make time to get them in. Um, this is actually my mom. So this is why I say I've dealt with like, I've had people around me, uh, very close to me that have had issues with mental health and so on. And so I'm going to, I'm going to put this in here because she put it in. So I'm going to put this in for you to kind of touch on. She said, I grew up black in a white body. Uh, now I am living, married, and in a white life. And my mom is, she's, my grandfather is, is black, and my grandmother is Lebanese. And my grandfather is black through his, he's black and uh, um, French Canadian. So um, he looks really fair skinned, kind of like your complexion. Um, and then my grandmother's Lebanese. So this is what she means when she says this. But um, uh, now I am living, married, and in a white life with a black mind. I don't feel understood, and I feel like my blackness is a weight on me and makes me mad. Uh, I am not accepted as who I am. How do I live in a white world looking white with a black soul? And I love that was just beautifully even written. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, I did some work with racially ambiguous women and uh, wrote about their experiences. And a lot of them talked about this same piece, that they were interpreted a certain way when they went out into society, but the way they were interpreted, one did not match their soul. I think it's actually, called, my paper is called when, when Face and Soul Collide. So it did not map onto what their soul spoke 
but it also made them privy to a lot of really horrible behaviors that um, if you are very obviously a person of color, people may not do as frequently in front of you. So there was this dual consciousness or this dual piece for folks where they, they were experiencing additional slights because people didn't realize that they were a black person in the room. And so they got to hear the kinds of things that were sometimes said behind their backs. Um, and that that added another layer of the trauma. So how do you, how do you live in that world? Uh, at, at our core, we have desire to be authentic people. At our core, we have a desire to be understood. And you have to find the people where you can be your authentic self and be, be understood for who you are. And what I have realized is if I'm going to be authentic and I'm going to be understood for who I am and I'm going to be able to speak in a way where I feel like I go home and feel I have integrity, then that's usually going to mean there's a lot of people that don't like me. Yeah. And that's just how it ends up going. But the people that I have in my world, the people that I can be authentic with, the people that do value what I have to offer, that sense of being at home and being safe is worth worth the price. Absolutely. And my can mom I is, it's funny you say that because that is my mom. My mom is not, she don't put up with no yeah. guff from nobody whatsoever. Authentic. She's super authentic. And that has caused her because now she lives in little old plant city florida and we i mean just coming into her neighborhood there's confederate flags all over the place and i don't i don't think when i went down to visit i didn't see one minority whatsoever black mexican or anything lived in her and her uh, uh, uh her complex that she lives in and so i know that she gets a lot especially with the trump stuff going on she gets and, a lot of those conversations like you said that happen around her and she has to say hey wait a minute you exactly know? because she's very fair-skinned and she has blue eyes yeah and your yeah. dad went through that i was time. gonna well i was gonna talk about that as well uh, my dad and also even my sister um they're very fair-skinned um and my dad has been in situations in the workplace where you know i guess at first glance he looks caucasian he looks like he he's a white man and so things have been said um and one time in particular it got pretty bad and somebody had said something very disparaging about um you know hispanic or mexican women in front of him in this big joking way that it was funny and my dad was really upset about that obviously um my sister she's freckled fair skin um she goes through that quite often and i think you hit it on the head she a lot of people aren't going to like you she my sister is constantly put in the position to have to speak up to have to voice out and say I'm actually not white. Um, I'm Hispanic because people will be saying things in front of her thinking she's going to agree with them or she's going to laugh with them. Um, but she's speaks fluent Spanish. And I always tell her, I'm like, you are the most Mexican woman I know, sis. Um, and, and if you look at us, people expect that to be me. No, I don't even speak fluent Spanish. And she does. And she's put in those positions constantly. Yeah. So my dad actually posted something on here too. Um, he was talking about his childhood and when he was 14 years old. I don't know if you were on when we had talked about this, but he said that the mental health issue started for him about 14 years old. He says, I started at 14. I didn't understand not wanting to be alive. And then he goes on to say, um, dad was dead. Mom in the hospital, which I know this story because those are my grandparents, but um, I wasn't alive yet, but obviously, but um, was alone, had no brothers or sisters, just alone. Um, then he says, coming home from school to nobody in empty house. And this is like deja vu from childhood. And he's talking about the quarantine situation. And a little background on him was he was down in Florida for the wintertime. 
and then came home totally expecting to come home. He was getting homesick to be able to hug on his whole family and love everybody and pretty much has been isolated in the house for the last three months or three uh, weeks or four weeks. Uh, so how, how would you, what do you think is tools for somebody that's dealing with, who's been dealing with it for so long, but who's dealing with it peaking right now? Like they're living at that eight kind of how we talk about that. And this thing has now got them way over top of, of the normal ranges of, uh, of mental health issues. Well, one, I want to acknowledge a piece of what he's talking about that I think many people are experiencing in a variety of different ways, and that this situation we are in is, for many, triggering past trauma, past uh, frightening or sad experiences, or it's making them really vulnerable, either because of their isolation or because they are trapped in a space with somebody who's also dangerous to their well-being. And so the... This self-quarantine, although it is so very important that people practice quarantine, the self-quarantine and they uh, maintain the social distancing, it does mean that we are, especially those that live alone, just starved for human connection. And we're trying to figure out how can I create some form of connection is really, really important. Um, some of it, again, I, I hate that so many of our answers to this go back to technological things because it, it really exacerbates the inequities across people. But if you have access to the things that allow you to actually talk to people and see them, that is really, really powerful in helping to bridge some of the disconnect. It's very, very different from even just talking on the phone where you're not, you're not seeing them. It's very different from Facebook or typing responses and chatting. Get some way to see the person that you're talking to and have that kind of connection. Also, this is a really great time because they have opened up the doors for telehealth. So we can, it used to be very complicated and pretty rare that we could see clients over video conferencing. And now with the situation, that's completely changed. And a lot of us are suspecting it's going to permanently have changed the field. You're not going to be able to put this back in the box. This is, a, this is also a wonderful time because a lot of clinicians that have been full have found that at least 30% of their caseloads can't or don't want to, for whatever reason, engage in teletherapy. So there's openings in places that typically didn't have openings, and there's this medium to end up having that, that care that we didn't really have much access to before COVID. That's one of our gratitudes to COVID. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't possible for most people. And many insurance companies have even made it okay to do it by phone if you can't do the video conferencing, which, again, opens it up to a wider group of people. Gotcha. If, the, if the person does have access to internet, there's also things that you can look at online that can be helpful. There's a lot of really high quality videos that are talking, walking people through skill sets on kind of how to do some deep breathing, how to you know, challenge some of your thinking that might be starting to get you to feel down and, and different things like that are really useful. Um, there's some really creative things people are doing to stay socially connected as well. People are playing games together, but they're doing it online in different houses, but the, the now is we have to find ways of having social connection in this world that's vastly different from what it was 
just a couple of weeks ago. Gotcha. And so um, we had talked about earlier also finances and mental health and compulsive spending. And what, what would you say are um, markers of that type of behavior? And how do you see that uh, coming forward in people? This is an interesting time because people are afraid. Um, some people, the, the finances are relatively stable, but many people are finding that they, they don't necessarily know what's going to happen to them financially. And we're in a point in time where there's been a lot of encouragement for supporting behaviors or going out and like buying as much as you can. And that tr with the combination of people feeling afraid and anxious, maybe already having some struggles around controlling spending, this can be a moment in time where people start to, especially online shopping when they're bored, buying and spending money in a way that puts them at risk later. And a lot of times we don't think about how money connects to our mental health. We think about it like, well, if you have money, it's easy to fix your problems. Um, if you are struggling, of course, you're going to have more mental health problems. But we actually enact our mental health challenges through how we handle money. And we will often reflect our core sense of our value in how we're handling money, what we're doing with money. Um, now, this isn't a universal because you have to have enough discretionary money to even make bad choices for many people. But um, the people that find themselves online coping with the loneliness, coping with the boredom or the stress by clicking more stuff they'd like to have, that's reflecting that they're, they're, they're in a struggle right now. And a more cost-effective way of handling that is to get into either some social groups that are helpful, do some telehealth sessions to address the underlying concern, but our, our money reflects what's going on for us. It definitely does with me. I think I've bought in a Corvette during my troubled times. <laughs> I've done it all. So I realized that I, a lot of times I'll say, man, I just went out and spent really crazy or I'll come home at night and buy four pairs of shoes at night. Or, you know, I see people around me that do thrift shopping and they'll have just tr just stuff piled everywhere. And that's kind of like their escape. You know, yeah. they get out of the house to do that, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they really can find a reason to have and buy anything that they see just to have a reason to get out. So yeah. And just a sense of control. You'll find people with tags still attached on things and it just makes them feel better. It makes them feel good for that moment. Yeah. So they definitely got to take like other angles. Then they got to find something else to do with that energy. I, I take it. Ideally what, what I would encourage if somebody thinks that they are spending more money than they have to spend, then trying to enforce even a pullout period, you know, before you actually hit the send cart, before you actually check out, that you take 30 minutes, you set a timer, and just take the 30 minutes to go do something else. Um, ideally, journal about what are you experiencing with them. You know, if you spend some time journaling about what was happening right before I started clicking those boxes or got went over to Amazon to make that purchase. Um, how am I going to feel about this purchase in a week? What am I going through? What is motivating this? Often that'll give you some time to parse out. Am I, am I really needing this? Do I really want this? Is this smart for me? Or is this masking or helping me cover up some other thing I don't want to deal with right now? 
And if we give ourselves just, a, often it doesn't take much. We give ourselves a little bit of space to not make those bad decisions and control, just exercise control for an extra 30 minutes or an hour, it gets us through that period where we're being compulsive in our decisions. And the same kind of tricks work for people that are compulsively eating, compulsively drinking. Like we have to give ourselves space for that pause and to really, you don't want to run away from the feelings you're having, but you want to be able to kind of intellectually deal with them. So thinking about what what's going on for me, what just happened prior to me trying to spend this or eat this or whatever, that processing it and not just covering it up by another by another cookie or another item in the cart gives us time to actually focus and, and figure out what's bothering us and what can I do that will actually help. Gotcha. Great. Great tips. Thank you. So what would a therapy session, when we get out of this climate that we're in, and even now, when if it's teletherapy, how does that look? Like, there's... There's common misconceptions that you come in, you lay on the couch and you say, you know, doc, it just ain't been a good day. I know that's not how it goes, but can you explain to the people like how different sessions can go even for different people and what's comfortable, uh, you know, if they can come in there for what's comfortable for them or how does that work? What for can them? it look like? It can look, you can imagine just the entire gamut. So what, what does modern therapy look like? We still are in a model where a lot of modern therapy is one-on-one, -on -one, unless it's specifically targeted as group therapy or family therapy. But when people come in, um, you almost never will find anyone that has anybody lay down on any couches, uh, at least no one that I am aware of. So that model is very, very antiquated. We don't do that anymore. But I think one of the things people might be surprised about is therapy is also not Go bash your mom. Tell me all your negative stories. Let's like rehash every painful event. A lot of therapy is very progressive and proactive. Like let's find how you can be more effective in these situations. Let's figure out where your blockage is. And there's also vastly different approaches. So some people are focused much more on talking through relationships and building relationship skills. Some are, we call it cognitive behavioral therapy, where they're very much about this is a thought pattern that you have. It's dysfunctional. Here's how you fix it. Go practice this 30 times and come back. Um, I tend to do a mixture of a lot of different techniques, um, probably more heavily based on using these ways of changing the thinking and the behaviors that are getting in our way, but drawing in empowerment strategies, drawing in relationship skills. But you know, people come in, they sit down, we talk about the things that are happening for them recently. We, we problem solve when appropriate. And also just like skill building. Like, are you familiar with how to do this particular thing? Do you know how to do deep breathing and why it's effective? Um, so one of the things that it, it happens for me, and this is not universal, but you're gonna leave my office with homework. And when you come back, I make a point of talking about that homework. So you're not gonna sneak through the session and not ever say, well, I didn't do the homework. Because therapy is 45 minutes, an hour maybe. How, how arrogant could I be to expect that the work that I'm doing in that 45 minutes is gonna transform somebody's world? No, what I'm doing is I'm just kind of like the way for them to get new experiences and new ideas and new things to try. And then they go out and do that all week long. 
And in doing those things over the course of the week, that's how they see this change. It's not because I do magic in that room. It's they're doing magic throughout the day and week and getting better. Absolutely. In my experience with that, um, a couple of things like we had spoken earlier about is things that shot out to me throughout my uh, sessions was um, one of them was five love languages, the five love languages and how to. And I think that given my other work that we do with the village, I really want to implement that in high schooling in some type of curriculum, even if I can maybe get you to come in and teach that one day. But that is so important to know, like with inner you know, relationships with people, if you don't know how to present love to that person or you don't even understand how you take in love, I mean, that when you would explain five love languages to me, it was like I left there and again, it was homework. And then I'm 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 going home and researching and then I'm teaching it to my wife and then I'm I'm giving my son the test. And the thing is, what I found out of that was I was doing a lot of things wrong and I thought I was doing a lot of things right. So these relationships that I couldn't really understand why they weren't where I wanted them to be. I realized through those love languages, like I'm doing this thinking it's I'm, Hey, I'm showing you love. I'm giving you everything that you asked for, but their love language didn't match up with that. So can you elaborate on, uh, love languages for the people? Absolutely. I love talking about the five love languages. I'll also say at the onset, they have now adapted the five love languages for uh, talking and figuring out love languages for little kids, for your adolescents, for your adult child for partners, um, for friendships. So they have, you know, this is a great time. You can find the books on an audiobook. You can probably even order them and get used copies because there's so many. But it is really cool to see how they're different for children versus adolescents versus your love relationships. Mm-hmm. So the, the bottom line of five love languages is that we tend to do for others what we long for people to do for ourselves. And mm-hmm. like the golden rule. But what we really need to aspire to is the platinum rule of doing for others what they would have you do for them. Mm -hmm. And we have a particular love language, then we show other people love in those ways. So I am, I believe words of affirmation is my number, probably my only one, I love that. So words of affirmation is my highest love language. And so I tend to talk to other people in ways that are very thoughtful about their feelings and very affirming and I focus on the positive and I do all these things. But if somebody else isn't words of affirmation, they're like, yeah, 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 you keep talking to me, but you have an X and that's what I need. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we usually seem to come into pairings that we're mismatched in our love languages. And so we can spend all this time feeling like I'm showing you love, I'm showing you all this, and you are saying, but I don't feel loved by you. And vice versa, they're showing these things for you that they need, but you're not feeling loved by them. And so the five love languages are, this will be a test, see if I can do it, um, acts of service, like doing things to help the other person out, doing things to make their life a little bit easier, gifts and tokens, and that doesn't mean that you have to go buy expensive gifts, but often, something that shows that you really heard that they mentioned this thing or even taking something small but wrapping it in a, in a thoughtful, caring way is really important for people that are gifts and tokens. Um, physical touch, you know, what, and when we're talking in, in uh, adult, mar- or not marital, but adult relationships, often that's going to be sexual, but when you're talking about friendships, that can be a pat on the back. That can be, you know, letting people, giving them a hug, all these other ways that we have touch. 
Um, for kids, sometimes if we're wrestling and that might change as they get older or tickles, all those kinds of things. But physical touch, words of affirmation, gifts and tokens, acts of service, ah, and quality time. So quality time where you know, they are getting your attention. It's not sidetracked with watching a show or playing a video game or being on your phone. You know, you can look at them and if somebody asked you what color their eyes were and you'd never met them before, you could tell them because you're paying attention to them. And it doesn't have to be huge long bursts of time, but they need that pretty regularly to feel loved. And so if we don't have any idea that the people we're talking to have a different love language and we are only doing what we would feel is loving, then we're probably actually hurting that relationship because they're never having the experience of feeling loved. And we can't just tell people, well, of course I love you, I do this for you, and that changed their feeling of love, right? We have to learn how to do things in the way that they need. This can be uncomfortable sometimes. We might need to really make an effort, but I encourage people, program it in your phone. You know, go say something nice to so-and-so. Go do this, go pat zones on the back. But after you've practiced and you've done it a few times and you start making it a regular practice, it gets easy, just like anything else. And now you have a relationship, whether it's a child or a partner or a friend, where both people are starting to feel connected and loved, and then they start kind of responding to each other in kind. Absolutely. And so we had talked about one time how if you go, like I think it was with a child, if theirs was um, affirmation and you do the opposite of that, it can damage somebody for life. You know, so can you elaborate on that aspect? Yes, this is really important. If we are punishing or doing harm to someone and the way we're doing it is in their love language, then that is going to be far more impactful and harmful to them than if we were doing a punishment that wasn't in their love language. Okay. So if, if we have a child that is uh, words of affirmation, but all we do is criticize or yell at them or tell them what they should have done, we might be feeling like we're doing really good because we're not spanking them, but we don't realize that that attack for them is five times worse than what they would have felt from a spanking. Right. You know, similarly, right. if you have a child that's physical touch and you spank them, even if it was a swat, one swat on the bottom, for them, that will be so much more impactful and painful and negative and lasting than if you had said, I'm angry, I don't like that, whatever. So when we punish in a way that counters their love language, we're actually giving a punishment that's far more harmful and far more severe than we're usually intending. So that's one, um, that's one thing like that I spoke on prior was when we were talking about, I think somebody asked a question about spankings. And I was saying, that's kind of what I was talking about without getting too in depth. I said, you know, it depends. It, it depends a lot on those things. And also I was talking about like something I learned along the way of raising my child that I didn't learn until I learned this was that I think a spanking a lot of times would have been a lot less harsh than the words I may have used at that time. And this is why I think it's so important for every person to know this starting out so that you're not going years and years and years and years and years traumatizing somebody or whatever the case is before you find out because you don't know what you don't know. So this is where I say like, this wasn't a psychotherapy type of issue. This was like a life coaching situation that I got out of therapy, you know? So that's why I say it's, it's broad scoped of what you can get out of, you know, psychology. 
Well, and we, our most important relationships for most people are going to be our relationships with our children and how we kind of are creating these people into adults and then our primary partnership relationship. And yet we do nothing to educate people on how to parent or how to have a healthy relationship. We do not. We should be teaching to be part of the curriculum from preschool on up. And yet it's, it's, it's absent. It's left to chance. And left to chance means most people aren't going to know how to do most of these things. And they're hard to do even if you know them. Oh, yeah. Imagine if you have no clue. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. But if you do know them, I think you're just speaking on so many things and, and it's so broad and it's so complex. But it's all for me. Like if I was a person that maybe hadn't bought into, you know, therapy or mental health, I'd be sitting there going, I mean, we've touched on at least, I'd say, 10 to 12 things that would pique my interest if I wasn't. I'm a person that buys into it. I think it's great. I think it's a necessity. I think every living person should invest in their mental health. Um, But, you know, I know that there's a lot of barriers to that. But this conversation has just been so eye-opening, even, you know, for me, just talking about a lot of things I've never heard of before. And I know a lot of people right now are hearing the things you're talking about. And they've probably never, I I told someone at work because he taught me the five love languages, of course. And so I ended up in a conversation with a coworker about it and his mind was blown. He could not wait to go and sit down with his wife take the test and they, he would just he was just so excited to do that and then he came back like a couple days later and he's like that we spent about three hours on that like talking about it now that he it was like life-changing for now him. look how their relationships probably improved <laughs> like crazy because they know each other now they, it was, it's not this person they met in high school and anymore. he said part of it was how excited i was to talk about it and how happy and like ecstatic i was because i i was and he's like that really made me like want to so just knowledge you know, and being able to pass that along past that, I think is really important. Yeah. I know we can't get everything into this, <laughs> but I want to talk, touch on a couple other things, like things that I took out of there. Um, we had talked about when we're dealing with anxieties, right? And anxieties can manifest in so many different ways and they can be reeling and you'll think that the worst is going to happen because something good is happening for you. And one of the things you taught me was, um, to, to think of things in a five minute problem, a five day problem, a five hour problem to evaluate how serious I need to really be worried about this thing. Is it because if I'm worried about whether or not my shoes are going to make it, is it is that a five minute problem, a five day problem, so on and so forth. So that's something that has really helped me because when I've been in those moments when I'm like start to reel, I'm like, you know what? Can I deal with this at the very worst scenario scenario that happens? Am I going to be okay? And what I know throughout my life is that, yes, I will be. I'm still here and I've been through some very, very nasty things. But if I didn't know that tool, you know, I would just have allowed myself to reel. So can you talk a little more about that 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 situation and and how that uh, came about? Yeah, absolutely. And actually that connects. I feel like there's two pieces in there that I'll take a minute to explain. But what I encourage people to do, and when I say people, like everything I'm teaching to folks, I'm also talking to my kids about and coworkers about, I'm just trying to, to spread this. But um, encouraging people to think about, okay, is whatever I'm getting upset about, is this a long-term problem or a short-term problem? And so one of the easy ways that seems to help stick is, you know, is this a five-minute problem? Is it a five-day problem, five-week, five-month, five-year problem? And that if it's not a five-year, five-month, maybe now five-week problem, then it probably doesn't deserve our anxiety and our anger. Mm-hmm. 
because you know, often we, we get angry about something, but if we could take a minute and say, okay, really, five-minute problem. I don't need to invest this energy in this. I can, I can go forward. But getting yourself, and one of the things I always encourage is do these kinds of things when you don't need them. So that when you need it, you've already rehearsed and practiced it enough that your brain just does it. Absolutely. So, so is this a five minute problem? No, it's a five hour problem. Okay, it still doesn't deserve my attention. Right. Five week, five month, five year, okay. Um, or at least I can adjust the way I'm allowing it to impact me if I can put it into proper perspective. Um, but another thing this relates to also is when we think about something is making us really anxious and we don't necessarily know what, what or we don't know what to do with it. Uh, one, trying to get ourselves to really identify what is the catastrophic thing that I'm envisioning might happen. So what is it I'm so worried about? Even that in and of itself, identifying the terrible thing we're afraid of is useful. So three questions. What is the catastrophic event that I'm afraid is going to happen? Then what's the probability that that's going to actually happen? So like anything can happen, but what is the actual probability that this event will happen? We spend 80% or more of our time worrying about things that have less than a 5% chance of ever happening. Mm -hmm. Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, don't give it your energy if it's like a 5% chance. Or often when you get people talking about their ex, it's probably not even a 1% chance that this will happen. Mm -hmm. But then the next piece of it is, and if it did happen... So what? So what? Mm -hmm. Very often people realize that, well, even if it happened, it's not a big deal. It's not really going to impact my life. It's a five-minute problem. But also that sometimes the so what really, really is dire. It really is something that would be horrible if it happened. But then I get people to remember that you can handle it. You will make it. You make it, you have made it through things that are horrible. And whatever you encounter, you can get through it. Absolutely. I have the faith that I will be able to get through it if it happens. Then you don't have to invest the energy in being anxious about it right now. It, if it happens, I'll handle it then. I can deal with it then. Absolutely. Mm. And that's kind of, I kind of summed that down to the probable, the possible, probable equation mm -hmm. that I always do in my head and you write when you practice it you do it without even thinking about it then when the you know and sometimes if I'm reeling too much I have to have that acute meeting with you and then it's like okay I remember the things I need to be doing and so I'll get back into my my processes but um that's one that I do is like the possibility of that happened yeah it's, it could happen and for sure anything could happen but the probability of it happened and I mean I broke it down so far to where what would the person or what would that thing have to be going through for that to happen to me? And what's the probability of that being going on in that person's life? Or So it, it, when you think about it, I can reel on a good thing in that case rather than it be reeling on something that's terrible. Yeah, I, I can attest to that, that, you know, as far as it being in use, because we've talked a little bit um, with the start of this whole quarantine at home, stay at home order and all of that, you know. It's a very difficult situation for us as a couple um, because I'm considered in the um, moderate to high risk category um, because I'm immune suppressed. And so it's like, oh, my gosh, she's going to get COVID-19 and could die. Like that's the catastrophic event. Right. Um, but then, it, 
you know, that Yeah, I didn't even say she's going to just get it. <laughs> no, maybe have a I was going to no, die. It's gonna be, you're going to die. I was dead. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not going to come to the funeral because we're <laughs> like, all quarantined. It's just terrible. So, like, so then it's like, okay, is it possible? Of course, it's pretty much a possibility for everyone. But then it's like the probability. We're doing everything we're supposed to be doing. We're following all of the instructions. We're mitigating the the risk. We're doing all those things. So the probability is, is really low. And then, you know, we were able to kind of work from there. And then it's like, well, what if you did? It probably would be bad. Then that's where the conversation turns to being like, you know what? Maybe it would be, but I've been through worse I've been through really bad things and came out of it. And so I think that I would come out of that too. And so it, it, I'm telling you guys, it works. <laughs> so the probability aspect really helps me when I go out into like grocery stores and I see everybody like touching stuff with no gloves. I'm like, well, he's going to catch before I do. So if he's still <laughs> healthy, I'm good. <laughs> so I think I work those little weird things out of my mind like that, you know, like whatever right, works, man. <laughs> that guy, if that guy ain't sick, I definitely ain't catching it. <laughs> Oh man. So yeah, that that's just that's a couple things that I really pulled out and not to I mean that's not nearly everything, but like I said I know we can't go through it all today, but you did promise to be my Dr. Phil to the Oprah. So you will be on the show multiple times and we'll bring you on <laughs> um, when there's something going on that you want to get off your chest to bring on here or if there's something that um you know that we want to bring our attention to. Uh, maybe it's one of our viewers that has a question or whatnot. Yeah. So um, if there's not, is there anything else you want to bring out or talk about? Or is there any resources that you can think of to where people now they find, they've heard it all. They're like, you know what? This Dr. Buchanan is the elite. And I need to, are you open for any, anybody to be able to see you now? Cause you said that it opened back up now with us with you being able to do video calls. Is that something that's open for you? I know you have your own place with, um, with uh, psychologists there. So how can people get the help that they may be dying to get right now? I know one person was so happy, her brother, when you talked about the the psychedelic being something you're going to do. Um, so like if somebody wants to get a hold of Dr. Buchanan, like how would they go about that and get scheduled in for you? So it may not be me. We may have to get you with a couple of the clinicians that are working in the office. And we are looking to grow and have additional clinicians. So if there are clinicians online, please let me know. Uh, one of the great things they can do is the Psychology Today profile. It'll allow you to directly message to um, myself as well as see some of the other clinicians. And um, the psychedelics, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, that is kind of a longer process where we are we're working on getting a building um then we have to it's still in the expanded access so we'll if our site is granted we'll probably be able to run five to ten people through the protocol and then it will hopefully in a couple in a year or two's time be something that we can actually do as a formal treatment outside of the expanded access treatment protocol um so you know Keep your eyes and ears open. Hopefully we will have that as something that's coming very, very soon. But worst case scenario, it would be two years if we can't do it in the, immediately. Um, so, yeah, go to Psychology Today. Uh, look at the profiles of individuals. My profile is up there. It will allow you to directly make contact to me. And, um, yeah, we'd love to figure out how to get more folks in our community learning these kinds of skills. You know, one of the things I wanted to make sure I talked to, I, I mentioned is, one in two people will experience mental illness over the course of their lives. Mm. You know, so That's huge. if it's not, if it's not you, 
then the person next to you, the person you're going to call tonight, then it's in person. Or it's going to be. Right. And, and really, in all honesty, in times of crisis like this, mental health system, symptoms worsen. Even things that you've already successfully treated, it becomes where you have to pull out all those skills again and you're working really hard at it again. So we are all directly impacted by mental illness. We have to remove the stigma. We have to come to embrace that we all go through this. And if we help people get help early, then they may never get to the point where they have a formal diagnosis. Even formal diagnosis, diagnoses are often temporary if people get help. So we, we get people better by getting them to do this and to no longer kind of contribute to the, the stigma in our communities around it. Absolutely. So it's psychology today, correct? Yep. Psychology we'll today. We'll We're going to sure put we all that information that in the up there. Yep, on our um, I can't, I think there was, there was something else I wanted to say. I can't remember what it was. Mm. Well, we did the techniques to do at home. Oh, techniques for people to do at home now. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I'm glad we remembered to bring that up. I almost forgot myself. So one, I want to say we need to give space to ourselves and to the people around us for the fact that we are not in normal times. We are in a moment that will forever change. We will all remember what we were doing during COVID-19, 2020, like this is that moment. And I find it problematic that so many businesses, so many things are pushing people to go on and do work as normal, go on, have the same productivity. Um, We're gonna soon be talking and working with people who are actively worried about somebody they love who's, who may not make it through this. And so we have to have space for the fact that we are not in normal times. So the, the meme everybody keeps talking about, you know, we're not trying to work from home, we're trying to work during an epidemic, during a pandemic. So we should not be expecting everything's gonna run smooth and like normal. Mm-hmm. The more we give ourselves grace to just acknowledge that, that means you know things aren't gonna be as simple, Things, some things that you used to do easily. One of my things is I'm carrying around a little purse everywhere throughout the house because my memory is shot because I'm stressed. So I have a little notebook in there, I write everything down and I keep my phone because I can't remember stuff right now. That's part of being stressed in, in this very strange time. So we have to give ourselves room for the fact that we just can't push through and act like nothing's happening. And that goes for our children, our partners, our friends, our family. So things to do. Find social connection uh, wherever you can and and try to do things every day that will give you an opportunity to have some kind of social connection. Um, Some will argue make your, your day, normalize your day. And that's ideal, but I don't know that that's reasonable to expect in the first few weeks of something of this magnitude. Like part of what we need to do is accept that there's going to be a new normal and we may not have our footing and that is okay. That is perfectly okay. Um, the other thing that I will encourage everybody to do is do their best to get enough sleep and really maybe even extra sleep during this time. Sleep deprivation worsens anxiety, worsens depression, makes it harder to, to think and remember and to do basic tasks. So this is not a time to stay up and do all-nighters. This is time to get as much sleep as you possibly can. Um, I encourage people to make a happy list and make that happy list 
and have it like physically be somewhere. So on your phone, and it can be things that you can do even if you're by yourself and there's nowhere, like you can't get to the internet, things that maybe require the internet. So go watch a comedian, who are your favorite comedians, having maybe even the link. For me, it's uh, the happy list on the internet for me is this little baby Ethan who his dad is ripping paper and he is oh, laughing. laughing. <laughs> I, I watch that without feeling my mood improve and laughing with him. So that's on my happy list. You know, songs that you love to dance to, things, people that you can call, but get that list and actually have it physically somewhere on your phone, on, on somewhere where you can look at it. Because when we are feeling down, when we are feeling anxious, when we are feeling hopeless, we, it's really difficult for our brains to come up with those ideas. So we need to have that list. Then my number one thing, and this is so easy, but amazingly is associated with a thousand different positive outcomes, three gratitudes a day. So every single day, you have to come up with three things that you are grateful for. And it cannot be the easy stuff like, oh, I'm glad I'm alive another day. Now you got to work for it. So figuring out three things you're grateful for and ideally try to catch them in the moment. So not just at the end of the day thinking about stuff. Try to catch them as they are happening. You know, jot them down somewhere. Gratitudes, this simple exercise has been shown to not only uh, improve de with depression symptoms, improve anxiety, but when families share gratitudes at the end of the day, you see that there's positive outcomes for relationship building across the whole family. They've even found that when somebody is posting their gratitudes, like on, on uh, Facebook, the people that are reading it every day have a boost in their mood and how they're coping and their well-being. So it's a simple, simple thing that starts to dramatically change how we are thinking throughout the day and the things that we start to pay attention to that we never noticed before. Absolutely. I practice that, and that's what we've talked about that a lot, but um, I practice it, and I always say it, but I don't always write it down because I'm the worst patient, right? So I don't always write down everything I'm supposed to, but I absolutely walk around like this last week, especially since I've started this podcast and this live has been just so, uh, so much a blessing for all, both of us give us something to do it's a schedule it's like so yeah socializing being able to talk Sardic. back and forth talk through some of these things but i've been so grateful for this and this opportunity and so it's been like i've really been counting them all all this week you know and i've been able to sit in front of my my um my computer and talk to people that usually i don't have everyday interaction with it it's just been awesome too so I've been counting my gratitudes. I'm hoping she is. I don't know if you have been as well as you should, but. Probably not as best as I could. And he does have somewhere to write them down, I promise. Oh, yeah, I've got. She brought me a booklet. I just don't use it because I should be using it. It's right next to my bed, right it. where it's supposed to be. <laughs> I'm supposed to be writing my dreams in it, all of that stuff. But I'll do better, Doc. Those to go were... back, read your gratitudes, like, over the oh. course of a year just see some amazing things that helps you feel any more incentive to do. I no, love absolutely. it. Those love were some it. amazing tips. Thank you so, so, so much. Very, they're simple, tangible. Awesome. Those are amazing. So Thank I, you. one other thing I do want to say before we get off, you had talked about. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So one thing that you had said, um, 
there's like that countdown because I want to talk to that guy or that woman who's laying in the bed, hasn't been up out of the bed for a week and is just, you know, laying in it completely fully off in it. And we talked about like when I was first starting, you know, and I would talk about this type of thing, you would talk about the countdown and giving yourself that three, two, one, go and just getting up because the movement is always going to be better than the stagnant laying around. So can you talk just a little bit on that portion for that person who just may be completely, you know, wrapped in it right now? Yeah. And people can find this on YouTube if they look up the five second rule. But um, there's this idea that if I'm feeling sad, I should do things when I feel better. But we actually know that we feel better when we do things not vice versa. So we, if we just wait to feel better, we'll, we'll never get to it. If we make ourselves do it, that actually changes our mood. So the question is, how do I get myself to do stuff when I just feel like crap and I don't want to? So the five second rule, you count down like you're a rocket ship, you're five, four, three, two, one, and then you're blasting off. You have to get up and go do it. So whenever you notice that you're procrastinating on something, whenever you notice like you're, you just don't feel like it, you're not doing it, whatever it is, Five, four, three, two, one, shoot. Absolutely. People have used this also in changing their thinking. So they're stuck on a negative thought and they did five, four, three, two, one, shift. Um, people have, they've even had people who were feeling, having suicidal thoughts and they were able to use this to kind of get them to shift off of something, uh, something negative they're thinking about. So it's, it's incredibly effective. It's very easy. It does require that you are actually going to listen to the countdown. Like you can decide, well, I'm still not getting up. But um, if, if you want to dramatically reduce your procrastination, create change in your life, it's a really great strategy. It is, and I use it. I appreciate you so much, Doc, coming on. Um, this yes. has been amazing. People are commenting. I'm going to put some of these up here. I don't know if you can see these, but... Um, see them right now. Uh, here's one. There's another one. Thanks, Dr. Buchanan. Um, great show today. Thanks, Doc, from Jeff. I mean, they're just coming in and pouring in, so people are very uh, appreciative. And I want everybody on here to know this was pro bono. She came on as a, as a, um, you know, just to help, just to come on here and help this community. So that was just awesome. I appreciate you so much. I've been so fascinated with your mind and helping people and helping me, me too. it's just been amazing we are so blessed to have you in the community yeah that's all i can say i know i'm blessed i tell people all the time <laughs> i brag about you like like it ain't nothing i, I do mean, too i'm like yo my doctor is the shit i'm, I'm telling like, you she she's the truth so um I have this community i have to say it's this is a time coming together like this and being able to offer this to one another it's 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 wonderful to see yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the knowledge, the wisdom, the tools, everything that you've, you know, gifted us with. We appreciate it. And so Daniel said, awesome show. Thank you, bro. And sis and doctor, your ex your expansion on your answer to my question was amazing. Thank you again. So we appreciate you. I will definitely be bringing you back on if, whenever I can get you on, even if you just want to come on and talk about today's newest news. It doesn't always have to be about doctor stuff, but um, I think it was amazing. I can't wait to hear what people have to say. This show will be on our YouTube tomorrow, so you can share it or anybody can come see I'll it. I'll link as many things as I can. I grabbed some really good stuff on there. The five-second rule and the love languages and when your you know, face doesn't match the soul, I'm going to link those up in, on the video. So. so any last things you wanted to say, Doc? 
just have grace with yourself right now. Do not make heavy demands of yourself. Be kind to the people that you're stuck in quarantine with. And try to use this as a time to come together instead of letting all the frustrations of it take over. Thank you so much. Thank I appreciate you. you. I will be talking to you tomorrow. But thank you so much for coming on, America 20 to Life. And we'll hope to have you again soon. Yes. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thanks, all righty. Take care, Doc. Talk Bye. to you. <laughs> all right. That was amazing. So as we wrap that up, I just have to say I am, that was amazing. And I hope that you guys really take, like I said, I'm going to link up those, those uh, links in the videos and just the tools. Um, if you, anybody has any last, you know, questions or anything like that, or topics of discussion really quick before we wrap up, shoot them in there. But wow. No, that was awesome. I mean, a lot of that I've already been through, so I know how amazing it is. And I know like how influential it is can be in your life, like to use those those tools. And I tell my doc I tell her all the time, like I'm my I'm my new I'm my community's Dr. Buchanan because I come out here and I spread those same things out like I'm a doctor, but I understand them well enough that I've used them to help myself. So I'll tell, you know, my my parents this stuff. I'll tell you know, family members, whoever is going through something, I tell about these things and how to use these tools. And it's really like a, it, it does have to be a repetitive situation. It's something that if you try, you use it. Like a, a famous saying, like in the fire services that you'll rise to, you'll rise to your training. You're not going to rise to the occasion. And a lot of people say that all the time. Like, well, if there's a fire, I'll be fine. That's not true. What you're going to do is when that panic sets in and the fight or flight hits, you're going to rise to your training, whatever that is. So if you're training these these tools that she's given, when you're in that bad situation and everything else fails you, you're going to fall back on what you've trained. And if that's training is to think of the probability of something instead of the possibility of something, you'll fall on that. If your training is to do the five, four, three, two, one, and get your butt up off the bed, take a shower, get some food in your stomach, that's what you're going to do. So mm -hmm. it is about repetition. It is about like really buying into the situation and learning yourself. Like really, ultimately, you're going to learn through therapy. I've learned so much about myself that I had no idea about, you know, and I've learned how to handle things differently, different perspectives on things and how I was seeing things might have been so off. And then some things that I needed uh, reassurance on that I was seeing right. I've gotten some of that, too, from therapy. So. Just amazing. My appeal to you would be to take just one of something you heard today, one of the tools, one something, and um, just put it into practice somehow. Practice it. Use it. Do it. Uh, look up the five love languages, something. Um, just do one of them. That would be my appeal. Yeah. One good one, too, like this sounds very minor, is breathing exercises. Mm. That's something that I do now and don't even notice it. Like if anxiety starts to creep up, tight, get chest gets tight, throat. I'll take a deep breath and I'll just bring it in and I'll watch myself expand and then just let it out slowly. And if I do that for like three or four times, which is about 10 seconds or 15 seconds, first of all, I've, I've found myself concentrating so much on my breathing that I can't think about the plane that might possibly crash into my house from, you know, 30,000 feet up. So like you immediately go to paying attention to how you're breathing, feeling it come in and out to where your mind goes away from what you were thinking about. And then you, I mean, sometimes I've, it's gotten so far away that I'm like, what was I just, what was I just Perfect. reeling over? But now it's too late. I, I'm done reeling over it. it. It's over with. It worked. Um, 
that's breathing. The breathing exercises actually took us into yoga because that's what like a lot of what meditation is. And you don't have to be super limber to do yoga or like, you know, any of that stuff. But meditation is like it to me, the breathing and, and part of with the meditation, man, if anybody that knows me, this all sounds alien for me to be talking about. I'm I'm Mike Measy from the South Side. Um, but I'm telling you, yo, this all the all this stuff works, man. It works. And this is all stuff that people look at and they like, man, you know what? I'm straight. The hood ain't finna feel that. I can't go over here and talk to little man man and them and be talking about doing no meditation. But do it in your crib when you by yourself. Don't worry about what nobody else talking about. If if all these brothers that I talk to and so on and so forth, we so woke, let's get woke on our own well-being because we can't be the man that we, we meant to be without doing these things that, to make ourselves better. Because I know that every single one of my brothers is going through some type of trauma. Ain't nobody happy, fully happy with everything they possibly want and need right now. So, I mean, we say catch these hands, Mike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you keep coming around where I'm from talking about some therapy it's a couple things they're going to think. First off, you might be snitching because you ain't there talking about what you did and didn't do. Um, Secondly, you might be weak, so you can't deal with certain. But I'm telling you, none of that's real. None of that's real, man. And I'd, rather, I'd much rather have the mentally strong dude exactly. standing next to me through whatever I got to go through than the weak-minded person who doesn't understand their own self. I mean. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So. And if even, you know, some of those people might take some of the tools that they hear you talking about and use them in the comfort of their own home. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope you do. I hope you do. And all the people that I'm watching that are in the comment section that I know have these issues, I'm hoping that you guys put hands on this stuff and, and really start trying to, to try to manipulate some of this to your advantage. Absolutely. So. We appreciate you guys being here. We hope you enjoyed the show. We told you it was going to be a special one. Um, I know it's, you know, it's fun and game sometimes. We fool. We talk about everything. But uh, like I said before, mental health is going to be something that is really important. I think it's something we will revisit. Uh, so we want to talk about the things no, that do. matter. There's yeah. a lot. There's a lot to that. Yeah, and so layers. There's so many layers to what Dr. Buchanan does and just her alone. But that's not there's doctors everywhere that do all types of specialties. But from from her level and me being able to bring her on here, and her agreeing to come on here and talk. There's so many levels I want to delve into, like for for my audience, you know, I've got a, a very diverse audience. But for some of the people that I'm I shouldn't say that most people that are in my audience are on one spectrum of racism. Either they're on the spectrum of they're a um, they're a empathizer or they're somebody who's dealing with it in a business aspect or in their church or anywhere. And so there's there that she is so versed in that type of stuff as well, like implicit inherent biases, mm -hmm. uh, sensitivity training, diversity training. She touched on earlier talking about how, you know, when you're in a therapy session, but let's not say therapy, let's say you're in a job interview and this there's a white man standing across from you who really likes you, but he uses the word colored in reference to somebody that he had an experience with prior. Those things are traumatic. How do you handle that when you're in there for a job interview or whatever the case is? So there's so many issues that she can touch on to talk about that people are going to say it's going to, I mean, a bell is going to go off like, wow, that's something that I've dealt with and I need to handle, or I need to talk about that because that's really bothered me. Or you're in a situation at work or anywhere else that, you're basically being killed by death by a thousand cuts of racism yeah. or oppression or systemic racism. And there's a lot of things that she can touch on and she has experience in that you may see in yourself from all the spectrums of the different um, places that you can be brought to just simply based on, you know, 
your life experience and your path and the things that you deal with, you know, day to day. Got a comment we want to put in here that. Oh, yeah. I'm going to bring it up. I was waiting on oh, you okay. to Sorry. finish talking. Are you, are you yeah. done with that point? Oh, yeah. okay. That was it. Daniel says this, at 31, I'm not ashamed to get mental help. I am ashamed that I've waited this long to get my wisdom teeth out. <laughs> I feel you, bro, that's bro. So true. I didn't see that last Yo, time. I had so my true. wisdom teeth in my mouth until I was like, because I was, I was more, you're right. I was more afraid of that than I was to go get help. So that's good though. That's yeah. really good. And that's literally, you, got, you know, you bro, guys, brothers don't go through the dentist. We don't go to the, but I that's the flip we're trying to like, it's, I said it earlier, like, it's bad. It's hard enough to get people, you know, and especially in our communities and in our cultures, it's hard enough to get people to the doctor. So this is something that's even that much harder. There's so many more barriers, you know, as far as, you know, learning about Stop crying health if I give you something you know. to cry about. We all grew up with that in the household. Everyone did. Everyone, you know, don't talk about a, it. I was a, a Go to church, you know, yeah. pray on it and, you know, all these different things. And not are, to say prayer don't work, but sometimes like the video I played earlier works. said, sometimes you need more than just that yeah she said a landline i love the mm -hmm. way she worded that like faith is great you it's, have it's to wireless, have faith right? but faith yeah is wireless. But that's, it's like, but that's you the need spiritual that line side of it. So she's I like did. you need that landline and i felt that i felt that so much so we appreciate you guys uh, you know joining in on this very intimate and personal conversation with us and and getting intimate and personal as well yeah absolutely it's needed <laughs> So I uh, we want one thing I wanted to touch on. Thank you, Teresa. I appreciate that. Um, thank you for your honesty and covering an important topic that will help so many people. I hope it does. Honestly, that's the, the reason goal. I did that. Did it, and if anybody knows me, um, a lot of people like to say this or that, but like if, if people know me, like almost everything I do is to help somebody. And every fight I've ever been into in my life, like has been me like picking a side for somebody that was getting beat up or. I just, I really do want to help. I want to help people to realize the things that I've realized because of how it made me feel or how I've been able to be helped. So absolutely, that's why I do what I do. I appreciate you taking knowledge of that. Um, please come back. I mean, this is what this show is about. We're going to fool on here. Don't get it twisted. But there's a whole lot that we got. You might laugh. You might cry. It might make you upset. You might argue with us. We want it all. Yeah, we're going to give it all out. So um, I, that definitely, I appreciate that. What was I going to say? I was going to tell oh. What I really wanted to talk about, too, before we get out of here, we got like 17 minutes to have a clean cut two hour. Um, when we can't do this every day, that's obvious. We're in quarantine now, so everybody's in the house and everything. But we can't do this every day. It's a lot of work to get this together. And we want to be able to produce good shows for everybody. So when do you guys think you can leave it in the comments now or hit us on America 20 Life and just let us know when you think when would be like the best day for everybody that they think they could sit down for two hours or. Or whatever the case is and have interaction because we're obviously we're doing this as a podcast. So this is recorded and then we end up putting it on. Um, we're going to put it on other platforms, which is on YouTube now. But we want we love the interaction. So like the comment section and being able to talk with people and bring people on live, obviously, adds a whole yeah. element to this. So we want to be able to do it when people can be on here. So, I mean, if you guys can yeah, comment, give us say, that feedback, give us yeah. some insight, you know, what days work, you know, what times. And maybe we'll put a poll on our page Yeah, that'd be and good. people can tell us, like, I think we'll probably do two shows a week. Um, we just want to find the days. I think Monday seemed to be a good day. That's yeah. kind of everybody settled in. Mm -hmm. um, but we want to figure out the days what when people believe that they'd have most attention span for this. Yeah. So sit there. Huh. 
Outside of that, though, I think today's what Monday. We'll figure out when our next show will be. You guys will know. You'll see a crazy promo out here. We'll do something funny it's or so something fun. to get it going. But I think the next show we're gonna do. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll lie. Tomorrow's the next oh, show. Yeah. We got Matt Brown on tomorrow. We've been talking about we're gonna bring him on. We're gonna bring him on to talk about finances during this tough time. How to fix your credit. How to get yourself in a position to be able to purchase a home. He's, yeah, he's going to give you some tangible things you can do right now. If there's anybody watching the stock market and all of that stuff, you can know if you ever, if you've seen how it went back in 2007, you know some things are going to be changing. Whether or not it's, you know, housing prices are going to go way yeah, down or, or it's going to be that much harder to get any loans because the credit, uh, the credit um, requirements are going to go way up, skyrocket. So that's a lot of stuff that Matt can talk about. Also, there's some programs here in the city of Lansing that, um, and not just the city of Lansing, but federal programs to get money for people, mm-hmm. uh, small businesses, all types of stuff out here to yeah. get. So lots of great resources. We'll talk finances tomorrow. That's that's what yeah, we're going to do. So tomorrow we're going to talk finances. We're going to be here same time, eight mm-hmm. o'clock, same place, same all of that. So appreciate y'all. Appreciate all y'all for stepping in and commenting and putting y'all lives out there. Even though yes. I, mean, I know we talked, I talked about a lot, but some of you guys put some stuff out there that I'm sure this is probably your first time really putting it out to the world that these things are going yeah. on. But we that's like, I believe the first step, once you can admit that mm-hmm. there's an issue at all. I mean, that's how I quit smoking six years ago. <laughs> yeah. I just went on Facebook okay. and told everybody I was going to quit and I got enough class at, or what is it? Uh, type A personality in me that I wouldn't, I wouldn't not couldn't back down from that I couldn't now. back down because I told everybody that I was going to do it. So maybe that's something that everybody should do. Maybe we come up with some type of challenge that people are going to, you know, people are going to commit to getting that help if they believe they need it. Yeah, maybe that is. America 20 of life. America 20 of life is going to get that help. Whatever. Yeah, something, stop the something stigma. From, stop the stigma. Yeah. There you go. Stop the stop stigma. Stop the stigma of mental health. Hashtag. <laughs> Let's do that. And if yeah. anybody's going to commit to doing that and they're going to commit to getting that help yeah. or commit to helping somebody else who needs that help. Or then... commit to standing up when you hear somebody trying to make somebody feel bad about talking about mental health or getting help. You know, that's even more important. You know, yeah. be that person to say, oh, that person yeah. soft. If you believe I'm soft, what? come try me, son. <laughs> come try me, son. If you believe Mike Lynn is soft, come try me, son. <laughs> But no, I re- really, any of you that have that asked a question or, or put a comment out there, or just talked about your own personal experience, I applaud you. I commend you. It's not easy. It's one of the bravest things that you can do. And I just, I appreciate it so much. Yeah. So that's going to wrap us. We love y'all. We appreciate y'all coming in, taking this time with us. Again, it'll be on our YouTube. Go subscribe to the YouTube. Or I'm not yes. going to let you back on here subscribe next time. Subscribe to our channel. I'm kidding. I'll let you back on. But I still want you to go subscribe to our channel because we're going to eventually move everything over there. All right? Absolutely. But we got to do what we got to do here first. So yeah. love y'all. Hope to see y'all tomorrow. Same place, 8 o'clock. And we'll talk to you, hopefully. Yep. And not about you. <laughs> talk to you, not about you. Is that how I end it? Yeah. All right, peace. Okay. <laughs> America 20 to life. Yo, excuse me, Miss Lynn. Yeah. Have you ever seen a show with a couple on the mic with bad content and it don't come out right? We tight. They ain't never tight. And that's not polite. 
Am I lying? No, you're quite right. Well, tonight on this every mic, you're about to hear. We, we swear the, the best, best podcast of the year. year. So, so here we go. Scream Bravo. Also, if you didn't know, this is our show. Hey, I like that. Here we go. America, 20 to life. <laughs> 